0: All right, we are going to be continuing in Bruce's um, message series, Don't Waste Your Life, and it's Philippians, chapter 1, 3, verses 1 through 16. Yeah, I'm just dyslexic there a little bit. Um, Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same... in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Let's pray. Father God, we just come to you in Jesus' name and we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for um, the fact that, that you and not only save us but you don't just uh you don't just leave us that you are with us to help us to grow to become more and more like you and god we we can't do that on our own we need your spirit to uh to to guide us and we need to submit to it and so lord just help us to do that and to uh, crucify our flesh and count all things lost and uh, That doesn't um, help us in our relationship with you, God. We just uh, we love you. Just help us to love you more and more every day. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.
1: Well, it's safe to say I think you would agree with me that perhaps the most famous Christian song that's ever been written is "Amazing Grace." It was written in 1772 by John Newton, who was a former slave trader who had just come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and now was celebrating God's amazing grace in his life when he penned those words. But back in 2001, CBS hijacked the term Amazing Grace for a show that we are all familiar with that they have since called The Amazing Race. Now, the Amazing Race, which I'm sure most of you have seen, is about sending teams of two people around the world in a month's time. They collect dues, they compete in different challenges, and they have to meet at checkpoints along the way. And the way the race sort of works is that the last team to arrive at a checkpoint is eliminated from the race. So there's not much Amazing Grace in the Amazing Race. And thankfully... That's not the case with the race that God has set before us to run. It was God's grace that set the Apostle Paul on his race, and it was also God's amazing grace that enabled the Apostle Paul to finish his race. So perhaps that's why Paul's favorite metaphor for the Christian life in which we are all running is, the race. Running a race. So, for instance, Paul speaks of his own life as a race when he writes in Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race. Paul even asked the these believers at the gla- church in Galatia, he asked them if Galatians 5, 7, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may attain it. And so if there was a section of Scripture that could be called the amazing race, it's right here in Philippians chapter 3. As we have seen... Uh, Throughout this series so far, Paul uses his own testimony. He's giving us this biographical sketch of his own life. And now he's using that to plead with us, to urge us, to motivate us, to make our lives count for the glory of God. Having described his his own all-consuming passion to know Christ, here in verse 10, Paul now tells us, listen, I'm not stagnating. I'm not slowing down. I am still running toward the finish line in this race that God has set me on. Paul refuses to be sidelined short of the goal. Short of the prize that awaits him at the finish line. That prize, that goal of knowing Christ in all his fullness. Nor will Paul let the believers who he's writing to at the church of Philippi drop out of this race. Listen, he loves them, and he is motivating them, and he is encouraging them, and he's even urging us in the same way to keep pace with him in this race. To keep pace and keep running, to press on all the way to the end. In other words, Paul's message to us is don't waste your life. Make it count for the glory of God. And so... What he's saying to us now here in this particular passage of Scripture, the verses we're going to focus on here in chapter 3 of verses 12 through 16, we could summarize it this way. Here's this big idea to you and I this morning. That is that the life that counts for God's glory presses on in this race. It presses on in the race. Now, it's been said the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. I think that's a rather true analogy. And finishing a long-distance race like a marathon is all about pressing on, pressing on, pressing on. In fact, twice here in these verses, 12 through 16, Paul declares, I press on. I press on. And it describes this ongoing, this grasping, strenuous pursuit that requires all of one's energy, all of one's fortitude and focus. It's an attitude, in other words, that says, I am not quitting. I'm pressing on in the race. I am not wasting my life. I am making it count for God's glory. That is the attitude that behind pressing on. And so Paul is exhorting us to do just that. He's saying, look, join me in this race and follow my example. Press on in this race. And even if you have fallen, even if you have struggled in the race, which we all do, he doesn't want to see you eliminated from the race, but rather he wants to see you invigorated to keep pressing on in the race. Now, maybe you're here, and the idea of a race, the idea of a marathon, no less, doesn't quite invigorate you. In fact, maybe you're here, and you feel rather exhausted in this race that you are running. Perhaps you have even stumbled and fallen a few times in your race. And perhaps you're even still on the ground, and you're about ready to quit. Listen. With God's grace, you can get up. With God's grace, you need to get up. And you need to keep going. Because all of us are rooting for you. Because none of us are perfect as we will see. Press on in this race, Paul says. And to help us to press on in the race. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to frame what Paul tells us here in these verses around the components of a race. And we're going to see that there's four components of this race. There is the starting line. There's the race itself. There's the goal and the prize at the finish line. And then there's the mindset a runner must have as they run this race. So let's break it down and look at it, what it takes to press on. Number one, we see the starting line. Be humble and be hopeful. Be humble and be hopeful in this race, but you're being humble and hopeful, especially in the gracious grip of Jesus Christ. Now, imagine with me here for a moment that you are standing at the starting line of a marathon. You're like, I don't want to run a marathon. Just imagine with me, all right? Just imagine. You're at the starting line of a marathon, And as you're at that starting line, what do you think about? What is your focus? And I would put forth to you, based on what Paul tells us here, you dwell on the gracious grip that Christ has on your life before you begin. You meditate on it. And as you do, you let that truth give you hope that you will finish the race that God has set you on. You see, although Paul's goal is to finish the race, listen, his confidence, his hope that he would reach the goal is grounded not in his own accomplishments, not in his own self-righteousness. It is grounded in the gracious grip of Jesus Christ on his life. Notice what he says here in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own, and then notice what he says. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The whole gospel here can be summarized in that last phrase. Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so what a wonderful statement of Paul's conversion. He was seized by God's grace, and Jesus made him his own. Years before, God's grace seized Paul and set him into the race in which he now has run. Paul's passion now is to know Christ more. And so he runs toward the goal and the prize to which God called him on that road to Damascus. Paul also denies, though, that he's already obtained. The whole treasure of knowing Christ. Especially what he refers to as a resurrection from the dead. That will actually bring Paul into the presence of Jesus Christ. Into Christ's presence face to face where he worships him and knows him fully. And so Paul then says, but I press on to that. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, Paul's goal to finish the race, his goal to know Christ fully, what he calls make it my own, is somehow connected with the glorious truth, it's a gospel truth, that Christ Jesus has made him his own. Paul's point is this, that he's pressing on to seize this prize in this Goal at the finish line because Christ has already seized him at the starting line. It's all Paul presses on toward a future prize that is not yet fully in his grasp. You see, he knows Christ. He's been seized by the grace of God. He knows Christ, but he does not know Christ as he longs to know Him. He has not gained Christ as fully as he desires. And he has not made his own all that Jesus has won for him. But because Christ has seized his life, Paul does what? He presses on with all the strength that the Spirit of God has given him. He is confident that he will cross the finish line through the grace that will not let him go. Now... This focus on God's gracious grip on your life, let me tell you, it is all the more important when you consider what Paul says in the first part here in verse 12. Look at it again. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, if anyone had reason to brag about his accomplishments, his successes, it was the apostle paul would you agree but paul doesn't do that here we don't find that in fact paul says that even though he has counted everything lost for the sake of christ that doesn't mean that he's arrived he isn't perfect he hasn't entered into what he calls this resurrected state yet can you believe that I mean, despite being the apostle called by God, despite being the greatest missionary in the history of the church, despite writing most of the New Testament that we hold in our hands here, despite all that he has endured, Paul admits, he acknowledges, I have not arrived yet. In other words, I'm still running this race. I'm not at the finish line. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. Paul never permitted himself to to be satisfied with his spiritual progress. He was satisfied with Jesus Christ, but he was not satisfied with his Christian life. He lived with a sense of holy dissatisfaction. You say, well, what made the difference for Paul here? i tell you what made the difference. The gospel of Jesus Christ made the difference. The gospel humbled the apostle Paul. When you look at the way Paul talked about his life, here compared to the way he talked about his life before christ seized him there is a huge difference in the way he sees himself in fact you go back to this chapter here chapter three and we looked at this you go back there in verse six what does paul say in the law he says i was blameless he's talking about his life before christ as a pharisee Man, I was blameless in following the law, obeying all the laws, the Old Testament laws. I was the cat's meow. There was nobody better than me. As a self-righteous Pharisee, Paul thought of himself as having arrived. But now the gospel of Jesus Christ has humbled him to the point that he says, by God's grace, yes, I have come a long way, not because of my righteousness, but because of what Christ has done in me and through me. But I haven't arrived yet. I'm still pressing on in this race, in this life, this new life in Christ that he's given to me. And in telling the Philippian believers that he wasn't perfect, he's also correcting some misunderstanding that was going on in their day and age where they thought you could actually attain perfection this side of heaven. And Paul says, no, you can't. But he's also, his words here to them surely brought hope to their own life as they run this race. You say, how so? Because Paul's identifying with them as fellow runners, as fellow Christians. He doesn't want them to think that he is superior to them, that he is somehow this super apostle, this super marathon runner. He's made, after all, some remarkable statements about his life. We looked at it. His resume in chapter 3 here. It is phenomenal. And yet, he's admitting that he hasn't arrived. I haven't finished my race. What an example for us. Because the truth is we can get pretty self-satisfied. Because we tend to compare our running with other Christians. And usually when we do that, we find somebody who's a little slower than us. We need to avoid the danger Of comparing ourselves to someone slower than us and also someone faster than us. Either extreme will not lead you to press on in the race. It will either lead you to pride because you think you're so much faster or it will lead you to discouragement because you think you're so much slower. But Paul isn't comparing himself to anyone else. Rather, he's focused on whom? jesus christ and he says i haven't arrived but i press on toward that goal why because paul is fully aware that he is in the gracious grip of jesus christ here and this confidence you know what it does for him it compels him it motivates him to press on in the race in fact what's interesting here paul used the same word in verse six that he does here In verse 6, he used this word to prove how zealous he was to press on in persecuting the church. And it's the same word that he uses in verse 6 of persecuting that he now says, I press on. Can you imagine the change in his life? I mean, before he was seized by Christ on that Damascus road, he was zealous. He was passionate to persecute the church to press on to the church and persecute those christians but now he is zealous to do what to press on toward christ listen if you've been seized by jesus christ if you've been seized by his amazing grace and if you are in the grip of his grace then press on in confidence that you will finish the race Yes, you've come a long way. You're not where you used to be. But also realize you have not arrived. So press on. And as you do, remember that Christ has made you His own. Meditate on God's amazing grace in your life. Marvel at His redemption of your life. Focus on the truth that Christ has seized you from the bondage of sin. And He has now set you free to run this race all the way to the finish line. Let this fuel your heart to press on, knowing what Paul has already told us here in this same book of Philippians. You go to the first chapter, there in chapter 1, and Paul says this in verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will do what? He will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, you've been seized by the gospel. You've been seized by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he will not let go of you. You will finish if you are a true believer. So press on in this grace. Press on with his power. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. And let this truth, this gospel truth, fuel you to do so, motivate, compel you to do so. This brings us to the race. And once the race has started, what do you do? You run. Exactly. There's only one thing to do in a race. And that is to run. But how should you run? Well, notice point two here. You run with single-minded concentration and determination. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now here is a marathoner who refuses to be distracted. Paul here runs with single-minded concentration, single-minded determination but one thing I do. One commentator wrote, like a heat-seeking missile, Paul is locked onto the goal of pursuing Christ. D.L. Moody once said, it is better to say this one thing I do than to say these 40 things I dabble in. And so in the context of a race, that means that we hear, we run with single-minded concentration and determination. How? Paul tells us explicitly how. He tells us what that means by forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead. There's a picture getting ready to come up on the screen here. And the picture is a bronze sculpture commemorating the race between... Roger Bannister and John Landy. Some of you are perhaps old enough here to remember that race because it took place in 1954 during the British Empire Games in Vancouver. This race was being billed, promoted as the Miracle Mile. And the reason for that is because it was the very first race in history to feature two runners who had just prior to this race broken running the mile under minutes. Never been done before until 1954. Before the race, Roger Bannister strategized that he would relax during the third lap and save all his energy for the last lap. But as they began that third lap, John Landy began to stretch his impressive lead even more. Immediately, Roger Bannister adjusted his strategy and increased his pace. The lead was quickly cut in half, and he was gaining ground on Landy as they headed into the fourth and final lap. Landy began running even faster, and Bannister followed suit. Both men were running now as fast as they could. Landy was still in the lead, but by now only by a few steps. The crowd was roaring with cheers, and then came that famous moment when Landy did the unthinkable. He looked back. He looked back over his left shoulder, which was enough to slow his rhythm, and in that split second, Bannister raced past him and won the race. It was a fatal lapse in concentration. Landy later told a Time Magazine reporter, he says this, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. After the sculpture, this bronze sculpture that's on the screen, after... It was uh, made. They interviewed John Landy about it, and he made this comment. He said, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back. I'm probably the only one ever who's been turned into bronze for looking back. Here's the point. If the Apostle Paul had been John Landy's running coach, Paul would have told him before the race, no matter what you do, no matter what happens, Don't look back. You keep straining forward to the finish line. You see, Paul knew something. He knew that you must forget what lies behind if you're going to finish this race. Why? Because you can't move forward if you're still focused on the past. And this is so freeing. Because if we will simply take this to heart, what Paul is saying here. It will free us up to run our race and to press on. Because God, here through the Apostle Paul, is calling us to forget your past. Now, what does that mean? Paul was suggesting some type of blanket am- blanket amnesia over the past of our lives? No. No. Listen, forget here doesn't mean you all of a sudden magically lose your memory. But it does mean you don't let your past influence your present. Paul has just listed all his past credentials here in this same chapter which make up the impressive resume of his own life that he boasted in until Jesus seized him. And so Paul has not, quote, forgotten his past credentials in the sense that they were somehow erased from his memory. But now, here's the key, they no longer occupied his attention They no longer occupied his passion in life as the focus of his concern and his confidence as they did before. And neither is Paul suggesting that we somehow just mentally erase the sins and the mistakes and the failures of our past. But Paul is telling us that in Christ, we can break free from the power of the past and we can reach forward to what lies ahead. And so what we find here in these words where Paul says forgetting what lies behind is a special kind of forgetfulness that comes through the grace of God, the kind that dares not look back lest you stumble in pursuit of the goal. So what exactly should we forget? Well, let me just highlight two things here, especially in relation to Paul's life, which I think we all can identify with, and that is past achievements and past failures, You say, what do I forget? Past achievements, past failures. Peter O'Brien put it this way. Paul will not allow either the achievements of the past or, for that matter, his failures in the past to prevent his gaze from being fixed firmly on the finish line. In this sense, he forgets as he runs. I love that expression. He forgets as He runs. And this should really encourage us. Sure, your past affects your life. We're not denying that. And it will affect your life either for good or for bad. But your past doesn't have to determine your future. Why? Because the gospel is more powerful than that. Just look at the guy who wrote this book here, Philippians. I mean... Here's the same guy, the Apostle Paul, who persecuted Christians, we're told in Acts two four to the point of death. And yet, we don't find Paul sitting around, moping around, saying, oh, I'm limited now. My past experiences have made me damaged goods. No. He simply forgets as he runs, and you can too, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So follow Paul's lead. Forget Past failures, mistakes, and sins in your life. Don't allow these past failures to keep you looking back in defeat. Every Christian, by the way, if you haven't figured it out now, every Christian has failed God at some point in their life. And most of us, if not all of us, multiple times. And you have to be able to forget as you run. And again, that doesn't mean you don't deal with your sin. We know from other places in Scripture, God calls, especially through the Apostle John, to deal with past sins. We, we confess them and we bring them to God, ask for His forgiveness. And so, yes, sin is serious in our lives. In fact, it is so serious that only the death of Jesus Christ can fix our sins. It's that serious. And not forgetting would be taking yourself too seriously then. And not taking God's grace seriously enough but not forgetting by not forgetting past failures and sins here's what's actually happening and we we don't even realize we're doing this but we are we are in a sense refusing to believe the gospel when we still hang on to our past failures past mistakes past sins we are not applying the gospel of jesus christ to our lives the good news is you're forgiven you're now righteous in jesus christ listen nothing will keep you from moving forward like refusing to accept god's forgiveness for past failures you will be stuck as long as you hold on to them so remember the gospel and press forward in the race follow paul's lead in this way also we not only just forget past failures but we also forget past accomplishments past achievements Past successes. Because you can't live on yesterday's successes. While we do find Paul occasionally relating. In fact, here in the the New Testament, you look at some of his writings. We find him relating, even sharing some of his ministry achievements. But we don't find Paul using those past victories as an excuse not to press on in the present. Yes, we should be grateful to God. For all of his blessings. In fact, even recounting his past blessings in our life, like David did in Psalm 103. But don't use past victories, past achievements and successes as an excuse to live complacently, to live indifferently in the present. As one commentator and author observed, Paul did not keep turning over in his mind the good old days of active service before he was in prison. He did not constantly remind himself of all his achievements, nor continually recount those special high points of his relationship with Christ. He is not distracted by the trophies of the past. Forgetting is not an act of loss of memory. No, it is an active, continuous discipline of the mind and heart. Although he did not actually forget the past, he emphatically chose to disregard it. Paul knows... That past achievements, past successes and victories, it can, can, can create this unhealthy tendency to cling to the, quote, glory days. you ever know any Christians who are glory day Christians? These glory day Christians, they remind me of Uncle Rico in the movie Napoleon Dynamite. I'm not saying it's the greatest movie you ever watch. But Uncle Rico is a great illustration of Glory Day Christians. If you're not familiar with who Uncle Rico is, he's this middle-aged former athlete, an all-star, who lives in a camper van and regularly videos himself throwing a football. Why? To relive his glory days of high school. And Paul would be telling us, don't be an uncle rico uncle rio here move on with life in the present strain forward to what lies ahead listen past achievements will keep you complacent and past failures will keep you discouraged and so like paul choose to forget as you run as paul ran his race he he shifted into high gear of forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul ran in this liberating freedom of what? One thing. Oh, there's a wealth of wisdom in that little phrase. One thing I do. As one author writes, For Paul there is just one course of action open before him to forget the past with all its failures and successes, all those things that could paralyze him with guilt or impede him with pride, and to stretch out to the future. In fact, this phrase he uses, straining forward, it pictures a runner, and I'm sure you can imagine it, either you've seen it live or on television here, a runner with every muscle that's engaged in the final all-out sprint to the finish line, and that runner's eyes are fixed on the goal, and his hands are stretching out towards it. As one author aptly put it, Paul is in hot pursuit of his prize. And what is that prize? What is the goal that Paul is pressing on towards? Well, that brings us to number three. The goal and the prize, and it's to simply know Christ in his fullness. It's to know Christ in his fullness. Paul says in verse 14, look at it. He says, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Just step back here for a moment. And let me read this again. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you can almost feel the passion and intensity in Paul's words here. When he says for the second time, I press on. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not expecting the race to get easier the older I get. But I press on. Why? Because I know the prize will be worth it all. So what's the goal? It's to finish the race. And what's the prize? It's knowing Christ in His fullness. In Paul's day, do you know what they got for winning the race? Well, in the city of Athens. Athens, a victorious athlete, was given 500 pieces of money. Don't ask me how much that is. They were given free meals and front row seats at any theatrical event. Now, in the amazing race, they get a million bucks. In fact, one year, one team got two million bucks for winning the amazing race. According to Paul, though, Our prize, listen, he says, is far greater than money, food, or even front row seats. It's the prize of gaining Christ. Knowing Christ in His fullness. And finally, becoming like Christ. And so Paul reminds us that the prize is that upward call into the very presence of our Lord. In fact, as we'll see next Sunday, even when our lowly bodies will be transformed into His glorious bodies, and we will be perfected in holiness. And we see that the destination of the race, listen, it's not a promotion. It's not a plaque. It's not even a presentation. Yes, there are rewards that Paul talks about in in Corinthians, but Paul says here that the prize, the real prize for finishing this race is a person. It's the glorious presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here's my suspect. Half of you right now in your minds are thinking, big deal. I, I, that's the prize. I gain Christ. And that's the problem for most of us. If I can be blatantly honest, the reason we don't press on and we're not motivated to press on is because we think too little of Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, the prize was Christ. But for a lot of us here, that doesn't excite us. Our attitude is, big deal. I thought it was more than that. You mean, Paul, you want me to suffer for Christ and that's all I get? You see, the reason why that is, why we still struggle with that, is because we still are pursuing what we already talked about, the treasures of this wasted life, the treasures of this world, treasures that that Christ has not yet overtaken us. We haven't counted all things lost yet in order to gain the only treasure of the life that counts for God's glory. And until that happens in our hearts, where we are willing to forfeit, to give up the treasures of this wasted life, the prize will not seem like that big a deal. You see, when you're all-consuming passion, like Paul's passion was, is to know Christ, then you will press on toward the prize of Christ. In our culture especially, we have too many distractions. These other treasures have overtaken the treasure of Christ in our hearts. And so, really, what we need to deal with is we need to ask God, God, weed out these treasures in my heart so that the treasure of Christ becomes my all-consuming passion. I've been seized by you. Now let me press on to know you more and finish. As we will see next Sunday, Paul knew a people who had their, what he says, minds set on earthly things. The horizons of their hopes were simply constricted to the here and now. What they could see and touch. But Paul is insisting that we take a deeper look at this goal for the prize that we press on toward. Dennis Johnson challenges us by writing, The prize for which we run is so much more than merely escaping the world's misery." It's bigger and better than never going hungry again or having shelter from the rain or cold or being free from the pain of cancer or arthritis or having a reunion with lost ones. He goes on to write and he says, the best thing about the prize that awaits is that the finish line is not the taste of the food at the Lamb's wedding supper, as delightful as that will be. It is not having tears of sorrow wiped from our eyes, never to return. It is not even streets of gold or mansions over the hilltop that never need repairs or alarm systems to discourage thieves the most intense pleasure of heaven is found in john's vision of the coming new jerusalem where we will worship jesus christ and see his face to the glory and praise of god in other words the prize is christ and if you don't prize him now if you don't treasure him on this earth then why do you think why would you ever think that you're going to press on when life gets hard And life does get hard. See, there is this prize that Paul sees and he presses on toward. It's the prize of knowing. It's the prize of seeing. It's the prize of worshiping Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I am running the race and I'm pressing on toward Jesus. So let me ask you, and I ask myself, What prize are you running after and pressing on toward? Right now, honest, in your heart. What is your prize you are running after? And don't tell me you're not running after some prize. We all are. Just some of us know what it is, and we're honest to admit what it is. What prize in this life are you running after? Does that goal of knowing, seeing, and worshiping Jesus captivate you, motivate you, compel you to keep pressing on? It must. Here's why. Because no lesser goal than Christ will ultimately satisfy you. Do you get that? Since no lesser goal fits the purpose for which God designed you for, and that is to make your life count for the glory of God. No wonder Paul wants to protect us from wasting our lives by settling for second best. By settling for these treasures of the wasted life. The treasures that, of this world that falls short of ever bringing us happiness and contentment and satisfaction. Listen, the treasures that God promises to those who trust Jesus are far more worth far more. C.S. Lewis I'm sure some of you have heard of his name. He writes in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex And ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum Because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea We are far too easily pleased and what he means by that we're too far pleased with the treasures of this world Instead of being consumed by the treasure of knowing christ Listen, don't waste your life chasing after lesser things Make your life count by running after one thing, Paul says. The greatest thing, Jesus. Will it be easy? No way. And that's why we must embrace a runner's mindset. You say, what is that mindset? Look at it here. It's simply to keep pressing on. That's the mindset. When you're in a marathon, there is one mindset. You don't give up. You keep pressing on. And yes, the gut hurts when you run. The cramps come. You keep pressing on. You push through. Notice the advice Paul gives us in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, there's a touch of irony here because Paul has been saying all along that perfection is impossible until we finish the race and get to heaven. Paul's point here is that the only ones who are perfect Or mature are those who see themselves as Paul does, rather imperfect. You haven't arrived yet. Maturity is found in recognizing that you're not perfect, that you haven't arrived, but pressing on toward the day when you will be made perfect like Jesus. In other words, here's Paul's point. Here's what he's saying. Mature Christians keep pressing on in the race. Why? Because we're not there yet. We're not at the finish line. And Paul says, if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. If you're a true believer, God will open up your heart and see that. The bottom line is what Paul says here in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Did you notice that Paul included himself in these words here? That's encouraging. Paul is exhorting us to keep pressing on in the race together. Yes, we're all at different places in the race. But praise God how far you have come in that race. But know that we're in this race together. So together, let us keep pressing on in the race. Don't lose ground in making your life count for God's glory. Together, let us hold true to what we've already attained in the race. And so here's the question. Are you pressing on or are you fizzling out? That's the question. Are you pressing on or fizzling out? And notice this. When it comes to making your life count, none of us have arrived yet. But God has redeemed us to make it count for His glory. So press on in the race with God's grace. The same grace that He has seized you with at the moment of your salvation. God will not let you go. Therefore, keep pressing on in the race. There's no doubt. Pressing on takes endurance. Otherwise, we will just fizzle out. The good news is, you, e can endure. I can endure. You can endure. We can keep pressing on in the race with God's grace. Did you know, in fact, there's a, a picture of this guy coming up on the screen. Did you know that the world's longest and toughest race was not a marathon? It was actually an ultra marathon that was first held in 1983. The marathon is roughly about 27 miles. This ultra-marathon was 544 miles long, beginning in Sydney, Australia, and ending in Melbourne, Australia. And so in 1983, 150 world-class athletes converged on Sydney to begin this ultra-marathon race. Let me tell you, they're in shape. You look at them, and you can just tell, man, those dudes are in super shape. They are fit, and they are ready to run. But up walks this 61-year-old potato farmer with no teeth, wearing overalls and work boots. And people thought, okay, he's just a local guy to watch the race. Oh, no, he wants to run the race. He walks up to the table and he demands a number. They look at him like, you've got to be kidding I mean, you don't, won't make it a mile, much less half a mile. Nevertheless, they gave him a number, 64, and the gun goes off. His name was Cliff Young. Cliff grew up on a 2,000-acre sheep farm in Australia. As a young boy, Cliff was in charge of watching out for 2,000 sheep. And on that farm, they did not have four-wheel drive machines. They didn't even have horses. And so when storms came in, Cliff would go out and run the 2,000 acres to herd up the sheep. It sometimes took him two to three days of running around on that farm to get all the sheep where they needed to be. So the race begins. Cliff ran at this slow, loping pace. In fact, he kind of shuffled when he ran. In fact, you can even Google the Cliff Young shuffle because he didn't have this perfect gait to him of rhythm of running. And he trailed, as you might imagine, the pack by a large margin at the end of that first day. While other competitors stopped to sleep for six hours, however, Cliff Young kept running. He ran continuously, get this, For five days, taking the lead during the first night and eventually winning by 10 hours. Before running the race, he had told the press that he had previously run for two to three days straight rounding up sheep in gumboots. He claimed afterwards that during the race, he just imagined that he was running after sheep, trying to outrun a storm. He also said he ran without his dentures because they rattled when he ran. As you might imagine, in 1983, after Cliff won that race, he became a national hero in Australia. Interestingly, professional runners even began to study and experiment with Cliff's slow, unorthodox shuffle that he ran with to finish his race. Go figure. He said, What's the point of that, Bruce? The point is, finishing your race comes by endurance. Hebrews, the writer there in chapter 12, verse 1 says, let us run with what? Endurance. Remember, the Christian life is not a 100-yard dash or sprint. It is an ultra-marathon. And if all you've got is this slow shuffle, that's okay. That's okay. You just keep pressing on. You keep pressing on with the grace of God that seized you from the very beginning. And you will make your life count for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we can receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven. Lord, thank you for seizing us with your grace. And by that grace, Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep pressing on in this race, and to make our lives count for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, I hope you will press on. Press on in the grace of Jesus Christ. We're going to receive our offering here. And as they prepare for receiving the offering, our praise team is going to come up and lead us in a chorus, and then we're going to stand and sing one last time to the glory of God and be dismissed.